Hope everyone's doing well. It's good to see you all. Thank you, Brother Chris and Tad and Jeff leading us. Choir did a fantastic job this morning. As Chris, Pastor Chris said earlier, we have over 60, somewhere between 60 and 70 that took a 22-hour bus ride. Uh-huh, that's the way I feel about it, too. 22-hour bus ride to New Hampshire, and they uh, are serving this morning, already having led worship at one of our sister churches up there. So really thankful as Pastor Kevin and Scott and Diane are leading them up there with Josh Duncan as well. So really thankful uh, for that and continue to, to pray for them. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, just a few housekeeping notes. This is the last Sunday of the month, so immediately after this service, we'll have our church conference this morning and excited about uh, that. And then also remind you guys that this Wednesday is our Bacon Biscuits in the Bible uh, coming up, starting the book of Philippians. And then next Sunday will be one service as we gather together at 10 a.m. to celebrate the Lord's Supper together next Sunday. So come and join us, 10 a.m., one service. If y'all get here for your regular time, just stay seated for a little bit. And we'll, we'll start there. Really thankful having been out the last two weeks for Pastor Stephen preaching for us from Obadiah, Pastor Jeremy from, from Jonah. So thankful to have some good and faithful brothers to preach the word to us uh, at our church. Um, we look today to Micah as I come back in, having been gone, as I said, shaking the rust off a little bit, so we'll see how it goes. In Micah today, the sixth of our minor prophets, as we look to Micah, I must make note that today is June 25th, June 25th. 2023. That means it is exactly six months till Christmas. That's right. Six months till Christmas. Or it's exactly six months since Christmas. No matter how you want to, either way, you can look at it. For some, that means it's time for you to take your decorations and lights down. Um, for others, I'm sure it's time for you to put them up. There's always a debate, you know, about when can you begin talking about Christmas or singing Christmas music. I used to not really care that much until recently, and I have come to the conclusion that Thanksgiving needs its due. It's a good holiday, and so no Christmas music till after Thanksgiving is my opinion. But I will say here, today in June, we are going to have Christmas. We're going to talk a little bit about Christmas in June, as we look to Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And like a lot of these prophets, you may know them best for where they are quoted in the New Testament rather than from their book itself. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 is cited in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. The wise men enter into Jerusalem having seen the star, and they say, where is he who's called king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. And as these wise men come in, they stir up no small trouble amongst those in Jerusalem. Herod gets a little angst under his crawl. He's trying to figure out who is this. They're talking about king. So Herod calls the scribes and the chief priests together and asks the question, where was the Christ to be born? 
And the scribes and the chief priests respond in Bethlehem. And they answer with Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I want to read today Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through verse 5, really just the first line of verse 5. As the scriptures tell us, Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the opportunity for us to, to gather in this place around your word and to worship you. For, for what we have already sung, the praises we've already lifted up, God, we, we come today as a people absolutely dependent upon you. Even our worship and our praises must be bathed in your spirit. So God, we come this morning asking you to move and to work in our midst, thanking you again for your good and glorious word to us. May you be honored in Jesus' name, amen. If you remember, we look back at some of these prophets and some of them are, are a little bit difficult to pin down their time and their place. When it comes to date, time, or even reason why they're writing. My, myself, when I preached a few weeks ago from Joel, I, I mentioned that. Joel just says, here is the word of the Lord. And, and we don't get much uh, context around when or where he was offering this. But that's not the case with Micah. Micah tells us what we need to know in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. It tells us who Micah is and, and where he's from, Moresheth, some 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, uh, the hill country, if you will. Micah, as one man just said, simply said, he was a countryman who, who had received the word of the Lord and had come in to tell what that word was. And so here is this man who comes and he tells us who the kings are at the time of Micah's life, which is the main way the prophets help us date them and, and understand their date. He says it's during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. Jotham being about 750 BC, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah 715. We can kind of put them there. And I, I sometimes struggle with how to handle those BCs, if you know what I mean. But it's in the 700 BCs that he is prophesying. This is before Samaria falls to the Assyrians and before Judah falls to the Babylonians. And it tells us who he's writing to. He is writing to Samaria and to Jerusalem. He's writing with this date in mind as a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah. And he's writing to these two cities, Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom that had split off and Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, that had, that had stayed. And so you have these two kingdoms and their two capitals that he's writing to. 
And to a certain degree, Micah's message is to Judah, the kingdom in the south. For he tells there in verse 6 that Samaria, your judgment is already sure. It is coming. And so his offer to Judah is for them to turn. There's still time. You can repent. And so he's writing, telling Samaria, judgment is coming upon you. Judah, you better not be like Samaria. The message and themes of Micah have been traditionally hard to pin down. And we know this. When we read the prophets sometimes, we, we read them and we're like, I have no idea what they're doing right now. He mentions a lot of places and a lot of things. And so sometimes that's why it's so hard. And that's why quite often we know more about the prophets by, by where they're quoted in the New Testament by, than by reading them themselves because they become difficult to pin down. There's no tidy arrangement of directly related themes in Micah. I found this quote this week comforting as I was reading about this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, and, and in an effort to comfort me, I'm going to help comfort you a little bit. He's writing about the minor prophets, and he said this. They have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next. So you cannot make head or tail of them or what they're getting at. Doesn't that make you feel better? <laughs> Luther is saying that's exactly when I read it, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily say he's talking about Micah, but I think he could be talking about Micah. For this moment of frustration that comes from Martin Luther could have very well come in reading Micah because there's no tidy formula to this. He moves from one subject to another. But what I would say to you today as we put Micah together and we seek to, to look at this, I believe chapter 5, especially that passage that we read earlier, is the heart of Micah's message. I believe it's the heart of Micah's message. But in order for us to get to that point and to understand the power of that prophecy, I mean, why does that matter that in Bethlehem there's going to be one who will be born? Why does that matter? You have to understand what comes before and when we look at what comes before, we see the same things that pop up in Micah or the same things we've talked about from Hosea and Amos and Joel and Jonah and Obadiah. Those themes of God's sovereignty and man's sinfulness and rebellion and, and the redemption that only God can give his people if they repent and turn to him. Those same themes crop up over and over and we see them here again in Micah. And in order for us to understand the power of the prophecy in Micah chapter 5, what it means that this one will be born, we have to understand what comes before it. And so we'll look back to chapter one. We'll try to get a sense of what Micah is saying. The opening salvo of Micah in chapter one is quite moving. And I'll simply give you this first point. Sin, Micah's saying, sin must be stopped or it will destroy everything. Sin must be stopped or it will destroy everything. Micah tells them in chapter 1, verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. 
All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. Here, Micah begins with a very clear, moving statement. The Lord is coming. He's coming down from his high place, and he's coming in judgment. The Lord is going to stop the sin of his people. He is going to bring judgment and stop their sin. And this, my friends, is intended to be terrifying. Quite oftentimes we see God as the the man upstairs or the fatherly figure that is above us. But what we understand when we look at scriptures, when the Lord shows up, it is nothing. He is not one to be trifled with or played with. In fact, when God shows up, the very response of every person that sees him face to face is to fall on their ground on the ground as dead men, terrified before him, the Holy One, the Holy God, creator of heaven and earth. So this God who's coming down is going to melt the mountains like wax from a fire. He's going to split the valleys wide open. Water will pour down like a great mighty flood is coming for this God is coming in judgment. The imagery of the coming of the Lord is always scary, especially for his enemies. We saw this in Amos. We saw it in Joel when he says the Lord will roar like a lion and his enemies will flee and run to the mountains and to the hills, hiding, getting away from him in every way they can. God's enemies, when he comes and he shows up, will show devastation. And God is going to bring judgment upon the people. In fact, this next thing he says in verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. He is so set on stopping sin, he's bringing judgment, and Samaria will be destroyed. Samaria, because of their sin, will be destroyed. Now, how will God do this? We know that God will do this by using the nations around, the Assyrians, to bring judgment upon them. So God is saying, I'm so set on stopping sin, I'm going to send another nation in there to destroy you because you become too wicked. By the way, God is set on this from the beginning, right? This is the very same thing, statement that was made at the time of the flood. The people had become too wicked. God will stop it. God will stop it. You cannot get away with sin for very long until God will finally put an end to it. He will finally put a stop to it. And that's what he says to these, uh, Micah says, the Samaritans, it's coming to you. Your sinfulness, you've set up idols. You're following after another God. You're not trusting in him The foundations of your very place will be uncovered. God is coming in judgment. Sin spreads because God is not only coming in judgment to Samaria. He tells Jerusalem, the judgment of God is coming right up to your gates in verse 12. Because Jerusalem has followed the way of Samaria. Jerusalem has turned away from God as well. So he says that sin that is in Samaria that that began there is now spreading all the way to you, right up to your very gates. And so Jerusalem, the message turns to them and says, you must repent. Now we've talked before, even this morning, about how the themes of the prophets are the same all the way through it. Well, what a great testimony that is. At some point you may say, well, why do we need to keep going? Because look at what God is doing. God is saying to his people over and over and over again, repent and follow me. Don't pursue after sin. It will destroy you. Repent and turn to me. Turn away from your sin. Repent and turn to me. God in his graciousness didn't just say it one time or two times or three times, but over and over again, he calls out to his people, follow me 
or judgment is coming. And here in Micah says the same thing. The sin that was in Samaria has spread. Sin spreads like gangrene does. We know what gangrene is, right? It's infection in the body that gets into the body and it kills flesh. And the only way for us to deal properly with gangrene is antibiotics and to cut the dead flesh off. It's the only way to properly deal with it. The effects of sin is the same. It brings death and it spreads out from us to kill anything it touches. Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this very argument about the entrance of sin into the world. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death came in through Adam and it spread to every one of us. All men now are under this consequence of death because of our sin. The gangrene of sin has spread. And how do we deal with it? What he's saying here is you must stop it now. You must cut it off and end it. Jesus even prescribed the same method of treatment, talking about sin, as gangrene has. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about lust. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And then he goes on again and he says, if your hand, your right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. He's saying if these things cause you to sin, you must put a stop to it, whatever it takes. Now, let me say here as a, a matter of care with the scriptures, God is not telling us to literally gouge out our eye or cut off our hand. He's using a figure of speech, hyperbole, if you will, of great exaggeration to make his point. His point is if sin is in your life, you do whatever it takes to stop it because it will kill you. It will destroy your life. You do whatever it takes to stop it. The Lord here is saying, just like gangrene enters into the body and the only solution is to cut it off, sin has spread and the only solution is to stop it. And judgment is coming because of it. Chapter 2 tells us that that judgment is not just coming to, to Samaria and to Jerusalem, but coming to all the individuals there, all of the leaders who are there. Because if, if you read that passage, it's almost as if they have broken every one of the Ten Commandments with their life, and they've turned away from God, and he's saying, sin is serious. Destruction is coming because of it. Judgment is coming because of it. And this is no small thing for the judgment that comes from God is sure and it is final. But maybe we know this. I believe we know this. I believe people who aren't even following God know sin is serious. I believe there's a guilty conscience as scripture testifies with all of us. There's some sense in which we, we know all of this. I believe the people of God that Mike is speaking to knows this. I believe they know it. And what do they do? Because what you see happening is instead of turning back to God, they, they seek to assuage their guilt and their conscience with everything they can. They enjoy what is fleeting. They, they take their mind off of it. They go into what is seemingly happiness for them in some ways. They try to do things to, to, to rest them away. As some people have said, Christianity is just a crutch in life. Well, what's reality is? Reality is everything but Christianity is the crutch. 
Because Christianity is telling us what is real. The truth of the gospel is telling us what is real. And all the rest of life is to get your mind off the reality that you have to face a creator God who made you and you got to answer to him. And ultimately, that's what Mike is saying. Because his very next point is, so we, we know sin's there. We have pride. We don't want to be under God's authority. So we look everywhere and to anyone that will tell us we're safe. Sin is deadly and it must be stopped. But instead of stopping it, we look everywhere and to anyone who will tell us we are all right. We want an alternative to our guilt. Even looking to those who will tell us everything's fine when it's not fine. Here, Micah tells us in chapter 2, verse 6, as he's speaking to the leaders and the priests and the prophets, he says, do not preach, but thus they preach. He's telling y'all do not need to tell them the things of God, uh, the things that will uh, uh, take their mind away from God, but yet they continue to do. You see it over in chapter three, verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. He says, you got people here who are telling you everything's okay. And at the same time, they're telling you everything's okay. You're declaring war in your sin against the very one who made you. The righteous God who designed you, you have to answer to. This is nothing new. This theme has run throughout the prophets. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak to it. In Jeremiah chapter 8, he says this, because... From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Micah's saying what's happening to you right now is the judgment of God is coming for you, and you've got these prophets and these priests who are telling you, hey, don't you worry about that judgment. Everything's going to be okay. They're telling you everything's fine when nothing is fine. They're putting a Band-Aid on your cancer. You know how that works, right? My grandmother used to do this when I would get a scrape. Y'all know what can fix every scrape, heal every wound, an aloe plant. My grandma believed in that. She would just go break off the aloe plant and rub it down. Hold this on it. Do it. Keep going. She believed in it. That healed everything. And if that didn't soothe my conscience that I'm okay, she would take that iodine stuff and paint me brown. Y'all know what I'm talking about now. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. That's exactly what he's saying the priests and the prophets are doing to you. You have the cancer of sin and they're giving you a band-aid and saying everything's going to be fine now. And you're falling for that trick, Micah says. They're telling you there's peace and there's no peace. They're telling you everything's going to be okay, and it's not okay. Sin has come in, and it is killing you from within. And a little simple band-aid of this world cannot stop its spread. Paul says the same thing if you think this is just an Old Testament deal. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he puts Timothy there to the church and he encourages him, preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. My friends, I think we're living in that time. 
and the danger that we have, the danger that we have is that me or you or any one of us will fall for the lie that there is peace apart from Jesus Christ. We'll just let our ears be tickled, telling us everything's okay, everything's fine. Taking away our guilty conscience and saying, oh, it's fine. Everybody else is doing it or they're all doing that. And they give us just a a tad bit of of hope and a a good bit of self-help. And they tell you, here, take this and you'll be okay. And the danger is that that we eat that up as if it's true. People will not seek to confront sin. That's Micah's point. You say, Josh, we talk about sin every week. Well, first of all, it's in the Bible. Second of all, the last thing I want you to do is believe that you're okay apart from Christ. People will look for anything that makes them feel better. They'll look for any little bit of tidbit of of something that uh, medicine, if you will, that makes them feel okay in their sin. They'll do anything except return to God in repentance. That's Micah's point. The job and the role of the pastor is not tickling ears, but nurturing souls. And all of scripture, Paul tells to Timothy, is for that purpose. Here is the bread. Here is the water. This is what sustains us, God's word. But then we get chapter five. In understanding in the context, God is coming because of judgment. He's going to put an end to sin. And you got all these people telling you everything's fine. When it's not fine, listen to me. He is coming. But how is he going to come? And surely he comes in judgment. Samaria will be destroyed, not one block upon itself. And the people will be taken off to Assyria. Jerusalem will be destroyed because they do not repent and turn. And not one block will remain upon itself. And they'll be taken off into Babylon. But God says that judgment is nothing compared to the final judgment. But there's an answer to it. And that's the weight. That's the weight of chapter five, verse two. Because just as God comes in judgment to his people, he says, look, look to Bethlehem. Look to a baby born there. He comes in judgment and the mountains melt and the valleys crack open, but he comes for peace with an innocent baby laid in a manger. The chief priests and the scribes understood this to be a passage about the Messiah. Whenever Herod says, where is the Messiah to be born? They said, Bethlehem, chapter 5, verse 2, Micah. They understood this to be about the one who will come and redeem the people from their sins. And what does it say about this one who will come? But you, O Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He's saying this one who comes, that ancient of days is a reference to God himself. Daniel chapter seven, he's coming from God. He is God himself. He's ancient, he's old, and he's coming in the form of a baby. He's saying that's the one who is coming. But what else does it say? Look at verse four. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He tells us, first of all, that he's coming as king who will rule and reign, a ruler in Israel. And then he's also coming as shepherd. And here's the great picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our shepherd king. As king, he will unite himself and his people together under one head. He'll bring them safely into his kingdom. As king, he will put to death their enemies and end their power over them. As king, he will secure their borders and make sure that no one else can touch them or harm them, for he is safe. As king, he shall bring peace to his people. There is where our peace is found, as chapter 5, verse 1 says. I mean, chapter 5, verse 5 says. He is our peace. As king, he has the power to unite us, put to death our enemies, and bring peace to his people. As shepherd, he will care for us. Remember that picture of Joel as that shepherd idea that the shepherd was the, the least among the people. Well, here's Jesus from, from the least, if you will, to the king. He's uniting all of his people together. And what was the role of the shepherd? To care for his sheep, to watch over them, let them dwell secure in his presence, keep the enemies at bay, lead them beside the still waters. Y'all get what I'm saying? Let them lie down in green pastures. Restore their soul. This is what the shepherd does. You're longing for peace. There's only one who can do it. He'll be born in a manger, laid up in Bethlehem. He will be king. He will be the shepherd. He will bring peace to his people. You can look all over for it. You can search for it. And you can hear people peddling peace anywhere and everywhere apart from Christ. And my friends... It is a lie if it is not found in a Savior, Jesus, who came for us. For our shepherd king put to death our great enemies. Our shepherd king ended death itself. Our shepherd king took sin and conquered it there on the cross. Our shepherd king rose again victorious. Our shepherd king reigns forever and ever. The word pastor in the New Testament simply means shepherd. And I want you to understand that the pastor of this church is Jesus Christ himself. Lord, have mercy if it was my responsibility to lead you beside still waters. Lord, we know I cannot restore your soul. Lord, we understand that I can't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I've got to have somebody walk with me through it. My role as the under-shepherd here is simply to point you to the great shepherd who gives you and brings you peace. That's the responsibility that I have is to say, here he is. In other words, the last thing I ever want to do is to stand before you and proclaim peace, peace when there is no peace. Because Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is the message that the church must proclaim. Because that's where peace is found. He's the one who restores us. He's the one who nurtures us. He's the one who rules and reigns for us. You can search the world. You can look anywhere and everywhere. And people will try to sell you peace here and there. 
They'll try to say it's found in financial health. They'll try to say it's found in mental health. They'll try to say it's found in this, that, or the other. And they'll market it any way they possibly can market. You'll even find preachers who will get up and give you just a little bit of nothing and try to convince you that that's all you need. But what I'm telling you is this. Micah's saying sin is serious. You're going to look for an answer and solution to it, but stop looking at this world. Look to the one who was born in Bethlehem, who is our shepherd, King Jesus, the Lord. He is our peace. He is our peace. And I'm sure this is our most saved service of the day. All of you are secure, right, with the peace of God, but maybe not. Maybe some of you in here have been putting a Band-Aid on the cancer of your sin for years. You think in some way you've got peace. You think in some way simply because of attending this church or even being a member of this body, you think that's going to earn you something or get you some favor somewhere. My friends, the only peace you can have is when you turn from your sins, repent of them, and trust in a Savior who died for you. And do not, do not continue thinking that anything of this world can offer you peace apart from Jesus Christ. Today, you can know that peace simply by turning to him. For our great shepherd king is waiting with open arms for any of his sheep to come home. Today may be the day for you. Let's pray together. Father, help us today to take sin seriously in our life and to look for a savior who has conquered. May no one here today be trusting in anything that this world offers, God, because there's no peace in that. But may Jesus be exalted. May our shepherd king be lifted high. May we dwell comfortably in the, the arms of our true Savior. Just as Micah says, look to that baby born. To that king who died and rose again. He is our peace. God, may it be so that everybody in this room trusts in Jesus and has found their peace in him. But if not, may they find it today by turning to Christ. Even as we stand here, even as we sing, may they turn to Christ and find the peace they long for. Work and move in each and every heart. For your glory and for your name we pray. Let's stand together and sing.